Are you confused by all the claims about the best diets, what foods to avoid, and the never-ending list of nutritional fads highlighted in books and headlines? We are too. And in today's episode, we're going to do something about it, including a discussion about the nuances around the latest intermittent fasting study that you've probably seen in the headlines, but you haven't actually seen what's behind the headlines. Welcome to the Catalyst Health Wellness and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper, co-founder of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Today's guest is Dr. Mario Kratz, the founder and director of Nourished by Science, an evidence-based resource I have a feeling everyone listening is going to be tapping into after hearing this episode. Dr. Kratz has been on the faculty of the Departments of Epidemiology and Medicine, as well as the Nutritional Sciences Program at the University of Washington, and intimately involved in the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. He now focuses his time providing trustworthy, rigorous, and evidence-based information about nutrition, health, and chronic disease for those like us, I hope, who share his passion for science and a healthy lifestyle. Two upcoming events to highlight. If you're a coach, we're about to cap registration for September's Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium, so do not wait if you're planning to join us. If you're not yet a coach, but you're heading that way, the next NBHWC-approved Health and Wellness Coach Certification is coming up September 10th and 11th, and it also looks like it's going to fill early. All the details for both of these can be found at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com, or please email us anytime with questions. We'll set up a call, results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Institute.com. Now it's time to push aside the fads, ignore the headlines, and dig into what the evidence tells us about nutrition and the science of nutrition with Dr. Mario Katz on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Your information is so in line with what we do here with evidence based practices. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Brad. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Now, as I looked at your history, it seems like you've known that you wanted to devote your life to the study of nutrition from the early stages of your career. You look at your degrees you pursued. There wasn't this bouncing all over the place thing. What got you started down that path? Or is there something behind the curtain that we don't see on your CV? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so on my, on my career path, yes. But if, let's go back a little bit further, actually. In middle school, high school, I was just like your average teenager, really. I was doing a lot of sports. I played volleyball, basically, like two, three hours every day. Wow. And I, I would come home and just eat whatever, you know, a whole bag of chips, a whole pint of ice cream, you know, five sandwiches. Like, it's crazy what the amounts, but also, but also the quality was really just lacking. And I, I just didn't care, really. I didn't know anything about it. And really what changed this is I had an an aunt and an uncle. They both were a little bit like my older sister and brother because they were maybe my aunt was, I think, five years older than me. My uncle, maybe eight years older than me. But as I was growing up, uh, they were just often over uh, at my at our, our place and played with me, you know, whatever, tennis. And, you know, my aunt would just help me through the struggles of puberty because she was, you know, six years further ahead. So she would give me right. dating advice and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. My aunt got a really bad case of multiple sclerosis. And actually, she died within five years or so. That was a horrific experience to kind of see. My uncle, he had a heart attack that required coronary bypass surgery at age 29. Had a heart attack before that. So the issue is that when I was just deciding what to do for college, you know, like where, where to go. And I, I study in Germany, so that's a bit different. As you enter college, sure. you have to decide already which program you enter into. Right. It really dawned on me probably that year before college that I had treated my body as if I had a second one in the closet somewhere. Mm. Um, and wow. I really felt like, Good man, analogy. I think we need to 
be better to ourselves to give our body what it needs so that we can kind of help it along as it helps us through this life. Right. And that really got me interested. I got to talk to a few people and they said, Hey, you should really study medicine or nutrition, something like that, you know, or biology, at least I had always wanted to be a mathematician um, at that time. Architecture was maybe the other option, but I more or less, I, I don't want to say on a whim. There was a few months where I thought about this, but pretty quickly changed mm. uh, that and enrolled in a nutrition program. Wow. I will say ever since my kind of uh, conviction that we need to focus heavily on prevent prevention is has really been strengthened ever more. You know, I think when we look at any kind of condition, be it heart disease or autoimmune diseases or type 2 diabetes, yes, there are ways we can get better if we change our lifestyle or diet specifically, but the power actually to prevent these conditions by making small tweaks and then having these more healthy lifestyle choices over many years, I think that is a much, much more substantial lever in my opinion. Not waiting yeah. until that fire starts. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I, so with my new endeavor and also with my, my academic career, I was really heavily focused on trying to understand you know, what are the factors that trigger the development of specifically in my case, academically obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and, um, and what can we do to uh, prevent these types of conditions from emerging in the first place, right? And that's that, I mean, that's what we want to dive into today. Your, your work, it's, it's so needed. What, why is it that nutritional misinformation seems to be so rampant? And obviously now in the age of social media, it's gotten ridiculous, but I'm mid fifties. I remember long before social media, it still seemed to be all over the place. What I know you don't know the answer to that question, but what's your thought in terms of why this, this misinformation is just so rampant and seems to always have been this rampant. You know, this is something I've actually thought about a lot because it, it, I do think the misinformation is not just kind of annoying. It's potentially harmful. Yeah, right? absolutely. Something that, you know, I go to some of these channels uh, and maybe we'll touch on this later. Some of these outlandish claims that I made there that in my opinion, are actually harmful to people's yes. health. But I do think it's two factors. One is nutrition is a, is a notoriously difficult science, right? I mean, you understand that. I think so many variables, as as anyone, um, yeah. it's difficult to understand how, what we eat, you know, the complexity of all the foods that we're eating, how that relates to the development of a complex multifactorial disease, say, such as heart disease or an autoimmune disease or neurodegenerative diseases, right? And so I think nutrition has in the past, um, you know, when we first started being interested in nutrition, uh, let's say, you know, 100 years, 140 years ago or so, we learned that we can make a lot of advances in nutrition by focusing on one factor, you know, trying to f identify the one factor that would cause a disease. Because in those days, mostly what society struggled with were micronutrient deficiency diseases, right? Sure. And, um, and so figuring out, okay, what's the one micronutrient that can, that we need to give people to avoid scurvy or beriberi, right? That, that was really the major focus. And I think when we moved beyond that to the area of non communicable diseases, like, you know, the chronic diseases that plague us today, mostly. Initially, we tried to use that same mindset, right? So in, in the mm. starting the 50s, the maybe 1950s, 60s, yeah. 70s, people were eager to try to figure out, okay, what's the one factor that causes people to have heart attacks? And I think that's largely where they saw these associations between, say, fat intake or saturated fat intake, 
and the incidence of heart disease, right? Right. And they would say, oh, it, that's plausible. You know, saturate fat. That's clear. Let's do some animal experiments. Oh, yes. In animals, they raise cholesterol. Oh, in people too. Um, and it seemed like uh, basically the solution was found. And I think the problem is we, at the time, in this eagerness to identify nutritional causes of these conditions, we, as scientists at the time, overstepped the evidence in terms of the conclusions they drew. You know, what they should have said is, we have first suggestive evidence from low quality observational studies, right? Initially, these were really poor types of um, types of studies where we looked at a country level, not even a population, you know, not, not even like an individual level uh, intake, um, like ecological studies where we, where we basically just said, okay, well, people in Greece seem to eat less saturated fat than people in Finland and, oh, the Finnish people have more heart attacks. Right. So that seems to be the fact. Extrapolate out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think they should have just drawn very, very careful conclusions. Instead, what we did is they drew strong conclusions. Books were written, you know, big newspaper articles, uh, you know, butter was on the cover of Time magazine and the U.S. dietary guidelines immediately implemented that and said, stay away from saturated fat, lower your fat, your fat intake, you know, instead eat grains without specifying what kind of grains, you know, like they, I think the focus was way you know disproportionately heavy on the fat and the saturated fat where it really wasn't justified by any kind of science that was around at the time um so that's i think one factor but the other that i see today with the misinformation is so in other words what i say is that people are skeptical of nutrition sciences and are looking for um other kind of explanations for maybe their own illness i understand you know i totally sympathize. You know, if I had heart disease or diabetes sure. or I was obese or something, I would be looking for answers as well. And I may very well also be dismayed with the governmental advice over the years, right? I, I understand where people are coming from. The other thing I, I really, I think strongly explains what's been happening is the need for humans to form tribes. You know, this, yep. this is really something that I think applies heavily here. Um, when I read um, Noah Yuval Harari's book, books on these topics, where he says, you know, humans have um, thrived so much beyond any other animal in this on this earth, because we're able to form tribes and believe in bigger you know, in bigger, more abstract concepts, yeah. um, which allows us to create money, allows us to create religion, right? And at the same time, that may also be our downfall because it also allows us to create tribes in areas where maybe it can mislead us, you know? Because you want to grasp onto something. It's like, oh, I, I want to be a keto guy or a low-fat guy or a <laughs> veggie guy or a vegan guy or a gluten-free guy or, or whatever. It's like you want to have that as part of your identity. And you become part of a community, yeah. right? Yeah. It becomes part of a community of us against them, right? And um, so people, in my mind, say, if you want to have a successful YouTube channel, you know, as you know, I started a YouTube channel just recently. I am very much aware I'd be much more successful if I attached myself to one of these communities, yes. you know, if I said, okay, or, or I, something I extreme. We want the yeah. extreme. Give us the extreme. Don't be in the middle, Mario. Come on, give yeah. us the extreme. No, I know it's, it's foolish, but it, you know, I feel like um, what we really need is a, a much more uh, unbiased approach where, yes. you know, because I feel like if I was putting myself into some camp based on what I eat myself or whatever other conviction I have, 
and new evidence came out on the opposite. You know, let's maybe say we say I start a keto channel and a new paper comes out that says, well, keto triggers whatever, right. you know, heart disease. Right. You would have to I defend really it. be open to right. talking about that, you know, honestly, or would I try to talk it away, you know, and, right. and basically make it sound like a ah, bad science, you know? Right. And so I do think it's understandable that people want this community, that people want the tribes, the conviction into something that they do, particularly when you change your lifestyle so much, right? You give up all the cakes sure. and all the yeah. all the things, and you want to at least feel like you're doing it for bigger goods than, you know. Right. Um, so I, I do think it's totally understandable why we have this, this tribal tribalism in nutrition and why we have so much misinformation. But I think that makes it particularly important to say, people let's wait a second here this is this is insane you know like um we sure i understand you know you john and you barb you had diabetes type 2 diabetes you were obese you went on keto diet or even carnivore diet and you lost 100 pounds and your diabetes went away that's wonderful i'm really i mean i'm so excited about people i often have tears in my eyes reading these stories and i've done clinical research in people who you know basically had major life uh, and health transformations, but but that can't be extrapolated across the entire population because of Barb and I don't remember who the other name was you gave. Yeah, but, John, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, so and and we're gonna so, we're gonna talk about your website, but nourished by science, folks. We got to support this guy. Like, get out. We Mario and I have no connection. He's just our guest today. But you got to get on his website. We've got to support the thoughtful middle. We talk about that all the time here. The extremes are not where the value is. We've got to go with the evidence-based practices. So, good job. I know it's early, but you need people singing your praise because it's so important what you're doing. Well, I think the, you know, the, the big, big issue that I'm seeing currently uh, to kind of um, continue with that idea with, with John and Barb who lost a lot of weight and reversed their diabetes is that now they're so excited about keto, you know, they're basically not open to any, yep. anything else, exactly. right? Anyone who is healthy on a vegan diet, that can't be right for one. But the other thing is they may have LDL cholesterol levels of 250 milligrams per deciliter. And their cardiologist may say, oh, you're at increased risk of heart disease now. And they may say, la, 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 I don't think exactly. so, because, you know, so-and-so on the carnivore channel says that right. that doesn't matter. Right. And I think that is the kind of then uh, misinformation that I think people should watch out for, because um, it is very well possible that a carnivorous diet or keto diet can help you lose a lot of weight, reverse your diabetes, but it could still be harmful in other ways. Right. And I do think it's it's not going to be good for your health to, um, you know, just just ignore all of that simply because this way of eating helped you so much. And, you know, I understand the psychology behind this, but I do, uh, you know, I would kind of recommend people to try to remain open to what the science actually says and, and not believe everything they hear on these types of channels that in my mind are too often a little bit more like a religion than, than based on science. Exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, can you can you pull from your memory bank some of the claims that have made you roll your eyes the most in the last I don't know six months or so, where you just, you see something you go, "Are you flipping kidding me?" Mm-hmm. So one one is I don't want to mention names. I don't want to sure, call sure, people sure. out at all. But I will um, say specifically um, uh, what the claim was. So there's there's a prominent person who has a carnivore channel. 
and um, he's also written a book about it. And in in the book, he says something to the effect that his LDL cholesterol is something like 550 milligrams per deciliter, but that that's not anything of concern because in the context of a low carb or carnivorous diet, if you're metabolically healthy, that's a good thing. And um, I can't say I rolled my eyes, but I, you know, it's more like I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned, concerned and frustrated because if people believe this, this could cost a lot of people their life because there's absolutely no evidence that, um, that having such a high cholesterol level is not going to be harmful for you in the context of, you know, depending on what your diet is or depending on what your metabolic health is. It's a maybe, inter- maybe it's an interesting hypothesis. That but, needs to then be studied and not just claimed as a theory. I would agree with that yeah. because, you know, if, if, you know, Brad, if you were following the carnivore diet and you had cholesterol levels like that, would you bet your health on this individual's opinion being correct, you know? Because well, I mean, if it was correct. my religion, I would. I mean, yeah. that's your point. <laughs> and I think that's the point. So yeah. uh, to me, that is um, the kind of stuff that I think um, I'm, I, I think it's unfortunate because we should be, um, you know, we sh- uh, great for people if they have success with certain diets, sure. stay open to uh, evidence to the contrary and evidence that suggests, okay, maybe here's a point where you want to watch out, you know, and maybe at least then be open to medication or changing the source of your fats and so forth. Right. Um yeah, other claims, I think um, there's huge claims out there on plant foods generally being toxic. That is a similar community, actually. There's a lot of overlap there. Um, I think that is also potentially harmful uh, one. And that's also something I've actually looked into quite a bit. Um, because, uh, so let's say uh, lectins are a good class of molecules. Not sure if your listeners are familiar with that, but lectins are a group of proteins that you find in, say, beans or grains uh, a lot, but also in certain vegetables like nightshade vegetables, like tomatoes and pepper, bell peppers and eggplant. And lectins are a really interesting class of proteins. And I'd say there is some evidence from mouse studies where investigators used very high doses of lectins ordered from a lab that had negative health effects, let's just say, in these mice. And then some people have come and written books about this and, um, you know, made this into the whole spiel, really, that lectins are the cause of all disease. Mm. And I'm not kidding. There's several individuals out there who make those claims. And um, they're very popular. And when we look at, you know, this, what I think is interesting is that as you know, I, I really value kind of nuance in this field. You know, I am not someone who says, ah, all rubbish, you know, lectins are great. We should all eat lectins. No, for sure. There's actually good evidence. Lectins are not great. They're, they at least give us some GI distress. In some individuals, lectins may actually be contributing to some conditions, you know. But when we look at the at the totality of the evidence, it cannot be a coincidence that in populations all over the world, those that eat the most, say, legumes, which are the most lectin-rich foods, you know, beans, lentils, and so forth, they tend to be the healthiest mm. across the board, right? And even within populations, those that eat the most legumes, they tend to be among the healthiest. So how we can just ignore all of that evidence and build on just mouse experiments using 
you know, hundredfold higher doses of lectins than humans will ever be exposed to in a lab experiment, and then draw a conclusion from this and scare the entire population into staying away from legumes, staying away from vegetables. Um, again, I think that's unfortunate because, you know, where what I think people need to know here is maybe that these foods, you know, vegetables, including nightshades, um, legumes specifically, but also whole grains, I would actually say as long as we prepare them correctly, you know, which we know is important to actually reduce the lectin content to almost zero. They're not just safe to eat. They are consistently associated with the best health outcomes. Right. Um, and so I think people get, um, you know, particularly when people have these types of conditions, like if you have Parkinson's disease or you have, uh, you know, multiple sclerosis, it's, in my opinion, it's again very easy to try to uh, to to fall prey to someone like that who basically suggests they have the answers to all of your health problems. I mean, it's the age-old magician coming into town and yeah, selling the stuff and then leaving town again. That's right, but a different again, book. I understand, I understand that, but let me ask people: if you see something like this, be a little like ask yourself, what's the motive here? Like. Does the person actually also sell, happen to sell a lot of supplements? Exactly. Follow the and, money, uh, folks. Follow and, the money. Um, and make a huge amount of money with a gazillion books on exactly the same topic. Like, I feel like um, there's really a need for some, you know, nuanced information. Like, if I were to give a talk about lectins, I'll definitely make a video about this. You know, I will say... Yes, there are maybe some foods that even when we eat them, they may still have some lectins. And if you have these and these health issues, maybe consider staying away from these foods for a while to see if it makes a difference. I'm not saying there's nothing at all to the story, right? It could be, but I, I feel like people coming out and writing books and saying, again, based almost exclusively on these mouse experiments, you know, that lectins are the cause of all disease, that, in my opinion, is just the modern version of snake oil salesperson totally. um, and not is not going to be beneficial to the health of the population or individuals who are following these people. Absolutely. Folks, I hope you're hearing what he's saying. Like, don't fall for the snake oil. That's anyway, you, you made a comment that with legumes and, and grains and some of those things. If they're prepared correctly, could you get, we won't dig into the depths of this, but could you give a brief version of what you mean by that? Yeah. So um, as I've mentioned, lectins are actually really interesting class of proteins. And I've, I, I can't claim I've reviewed the entire literature, but easily hundreds of papers on this topic. They are really interesting. They do have certain properties that could harm us. Um, and so as a result, for example, if you manage to eat a few raw kidney beans that are not cooked, you know, just the dried ones that you buy in the bulk section at the grocery store, mm -hmm. they do still have the kidney bean lectin in it. And um, your body would not be able to digest it effectively because lectins is one of their potentially damaging properties. They don't, they're not well digested. And so they would actually make you very sick. Like you could actually, some, from some of these lectins, you can even die um, in fairly low doses. Uh, so ricin, for example, is a, is a lectin from legumes that has traditionally been used as a poison. And so it's, it's clear, yes, lectins are not good for us. But if you follow the normal methods of preparing legumes where you ideally soak them and then you cook them for a long enough time, ideally pressure cook them even, 
And that's similar if you buy a canned legume, okay. like a canned bean, for example, they're basically uh, already they're kind of pressure cooked. Yeah. Okay. If you can eat them, if they're soft and, and, you know, mushy, like if they, you know, if they're still hard, I would say don't eat them. But if they're, if they're, if you can eat them, like they're pleasant to eat, the lectin content from all the research we know has been reduced by 99 point something percent, you know, it's the lectins are almost entirely gone. Interesting. And so, um, Similarly with um, grains, actually, and that's maybe an interesting point for people to understand. Um, so traditionally, when people have uh, made whole grains, they've understood that the whole grain would ideally be fermented, like, say, a sourdough fermentation. And in the process of the sourdough fermentation, what we know is some of the lectins actually in, say, wheat um, get degraded. So wheat has a very potent lectin as well, um, wheat germ agglutinin. And that gets degraded in the process of the uh, fermentation. And then when you bake the bread, again, further, further, it's being degraded. And then in the, in the bread, when you eat it, there's basically very little in it uh, that actually is still bioactive. But when we take these shortcuts today, um, where, you know, we're not doing the sourdough fermentation, but we're having a factory produced uh, kind of bread. And now because we need to eat whole grain, you know, they're going to put a few whole grains in there. We're not having the fermentation necessarily. I'm a little unsure that that's a good thing, or even in some cases, we're adding actually extracts, you know, we're adding extracted gluten and we're adding extracted things uh, to bread uh, in a factory, and we're not following the traditional procedures. I am open to the idea that that may not be a good thing. Mm. Uh, and so people may want to watch out for those types of issues where, you know, we've just deviated from the traditional way in which we've eaten some of these foods. And we're basically now in the industrialized food system we're inventing new ways of making these foods in a quicker, faster, cheaper way. Um, and I'm not saying this is dangerous, but I'd say it's possible that there is some potential for issues in some people. Well, it, it's interesting. You mentioned that we, um, we just had Charles Mann who wrote the wizard and the prophet on recently. And he gets into some of the, the history behind the food changes and the, biochemistry and all that. So interesting connection there. Uh, mm -hmm. The U.S. Department of Agriculture promotes the MyPlate visual, and, and most people have seen this. It shows varying amounts of fruits, veggies, grains, protein, and dairy. As you look at that, I know there's been a lot of discussion around that, and there's recently been some changes to it. What What are some of your thoughts based on the evidence you've reviewed in terms of that general diagram? I, again, Everyone's individual, what's exactly right for you is going to be a little bit different for me. But in your perspective, in, in the, 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 all the evidence that you've looked at, what's your thought on that MyPlate? So um, call me a little bit biased because I know several individuals who are serving on these on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. So uh, I know for sure this is a ton of work that people go through. They look through thousands of papers. And really, I think what people first thing they need to know is, this is not an easy task, you know, to make a recommendation for all population. Absolutely. And people, I think, really uh, are working hard to, you know, extract the best information from the literature, uh, because often I'm really uh, sad to see how often these guidelines get attacked by people just saying, ah, this is all rubbish, you know, but it's easy to complain. It's much, much harder to come up with something yourself uh, based on such a huge body of evidence and particularly come up with it for an entire population. That's a big task. And I'll explain in a minute what I mean with this. Let me maybe first say I'm not 100% in agreement with everything the guidelines recommend 
or do not recommend. And let me just pick one thing. Um, currently, the guidelines um, say that uh, people should eat a certain amount of grains, and at least 50% of those grains should be whole grains. What that implies is that the guidelines are fine if you eat about half of your grains as refined grains. And that's actually what is happening as well, right? Because the guidelines are being used to implement uh, school meals. School meals, in, yeah, exactly. You know, in hospitals and so forth. And so, um, in my opinion, that's not in line with the evidence. I, If I was on the guideline advisory committee, I would not be okay with that simply because I think the evidence is pretty clear that eating a lot of refined grains, you know, like white bread, for example, white rice, like there's really no health benefit with that. I mean, it's, it's cheap maybe, and it's abundantly available, but in my opinion, those are the types of foods we should all aim to limit. You know, in my mind, they're all what I would call actually treats. Like there's no nutritional value to eating a white, you know, a white bread, white wheat bread. Right. Um, it's filling maybe, you know, you can add your jam to it uh, or your peanut butter and jelly. But, you know, in my mind, that's not something that the government should even right. be fine with. Right? Right. Yeah. So, and I'm not saying they're recommending this explicitly, but the way they're wording it, they must be aware it's more or less such that people will continue to eat a lot of refined grains. And I think that's, you know, that's not a good thing. Um, what I will say otherwise, though, is there are also a lot of things in the in the guidelines that say, you know, for example, you should eat uh, a certain amount of fruit or you should eat a certain amount of dairy. And I would argue, well, you know, on an individual level, you can be totally fine, actually have perfect health if you eat a good whole foods, nutrient dense diet, even if you never touch fruit and even if you never touch dairy. But the, the, the one reason why I'm saying the guidelines are still fine the way they are is that what, what the guideline committee needs to be aware of is the consequences of their recommendations on a population level. And I've actually been involved in a lot of, like heard a lot of talk about these types of things and read a lot of papers on this. So let's assume, for example, the guidelines committee said, oh, let's just say we're not going to recommend dairy anymore. You know, we're going to take out dairy. We'll say, you know, it's fine if you want to eat dairy, but you don't have to. You know, dairy are not recommended anymore. What happens is that, broadly speaking, the average person is not going to replace the dairy with broccoli and kale and kidney beans. Yes. They're going to replace it with something else that's similarly affordable and similarly available and convenient, right? So rather than take a yogurt to school, the kids may have a Snicker bar. Yeah. And the schools specifically, right, they have such a small budget and dairy is fairly cheap. And so if they suddenly were no longer giving out dairy, um, you know, what would they replace it with? So it, it, it's fair to say, in my mind, that for it being population based recommendations, the, 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 the guidelines are fine with me because they do make it very clear that they recommend largely unprocessed, you know, or only moderately processed foods that are nutrient dense. And they still allow for on an individual level, they allow for a wide variety of foods, right? So if any one of your listeners were to actually study the guidelines carefully, you could eat any kind of diet and still be more or less, you know, compliant with what the guidelines suggest. You know, you, it's not like you actually need to eat the, the, the grains, but as long as you follow the other recommendations and, and, you know, you eat your pieces of protein, 
be it from animal foods or from say legumes um you eat some you know whole nuts you eat some vegetables you eat some fruit you eat some dairy you're, you're going to be largely in line with um, what the guidelines actually suggest. So I'm not sure if that makes sense, but, but what, I'm, what I feel quite strongly about is that people need to realize that these are population-based guidelines and that um, there's a lot of thinking behind how these guidelines will affect the actual provision of foods in, in institutions, schools, prisons, you know, all of that. And that's a big, big part of this that we should consider. And that the committee is very aware that changing the guidelines may, in many cases, have consequences right. uh, that are not intended. Like what I said earlier, if they, if they didn't recommend dairy, you know, the nutritional quality. The Snickers bar salesmen are thrilled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they would. I mean, I think almost certainly the nutrient uh, content of foods would certainly not be beneficially affected if the guidelines suddenly said don't eat dairy, right? Okay. Um, all right. So big topic. Just recently, prior to us setting up this interview, a study came out on time-restricted eating. A lot of people think of that as intermittent fasting. Um, key aspect, you've looked at it. What, what have you found? What are, what are some of the lessons from this? Is it a study we should tune into? Is it one we need to keep our eye on? Is it one that we throw out? What, what are your thoughts on this? Because it's getting a lot of attention online. And frankly, one of our most popular episodes of all time was Dr. Mark Matson, and he's the most published researcher in the world on intermittent fasting. What, what do you think? Yeah, so for, for those listeners who are not very clear on what uh, time-restricted eating is, right? So time-restricted eating is what this paper is about, is uh, a certain form of intermittent fasting where usually we're eating just in a, in a small window of time during the day. Like a 16, eight is, is very common folks. You don't eat for 16 hours. There are variations of that, but that that's a good summary. Thank you. Yeah. And so that's really based on experiments that were done initially about 10 years ago in Sachin Panda's lab at the Salk Institute, where in mice, they saw that if they give mice a diet on which they became obese, like a high fat diet, they would eat all day, basically. Um, even wake up, you know, during times when they're sleeping because they like the high fat diet so much to just eat a little bit of it. And so they, they did this very simple experiment where they restricted access to the high fat diet to just eight hours, uh, you know, a day and basically allowed them to eat only during these eight hours. And, and they had to fast for 16 hours. And interestingly, the mice, they learned that, you know, they would have access to this yummy food only for eight hours. So they ate disproportionately more eventually eating almost as many calories as they did when they had access to it for 24 hours. But interestingly, they didn't gain any weight. And what they found in this experiment actually was that the resistance to weight gain, you know, was not because they ate less calories, but because they burned more calories. So energy expenditure was a lot higher. And I think that idea, you know, took off like like a rocket because people like the idea that you know maybe if I if I can still eat whatever I want, maybe even overeat and still not gain weight because my body just burns it off. That's wonderful, you know. I like think we'd all sign up, sign up on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so um, basically, there's now been several attempts in humans to try to look into this exact phenomenon. Um, and as a matter of fact, I've tried many times with Sachin Panda to get grants funded on this topic and not been successful. Um, but 
I've, by my count, there are now six studies um, that have uh, that were longer than eight hour, eight weeks or so. So the, the duration of the studies were eight weeks to one year, and they uh, have looked into the effect of different versions of time restricted eating on weight loss. And so the the newest one that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine on April 21st is the biggest one of all of them. It had 139 participants, I think, that were randomized to basically restrict their calorie intake by 25% from baseline. So they were eating 75% of the calories they were eating before the study. Or the same calorie restriction plus, as you mentioned, 16-8 time-restricted eating. So eat only for eight hours a day and then fast for the remaining 16 hours. And... Um, in that study, they actually did early time restricted feeding, which means you start eating at about 8 a.m. and you eat only until 4 p.m. And then you fast for the, you know, until 8 a.m. the next day. And so long story short, what they found here was that um, there was weight loss in both groups, but uh, not more, not greater weight loss in the group that that did uh, time restricted eating. And um, at least, you know, the difference, there was a difference of about four pounds or so between the groups, but that wasn't statistically significant. Gotcha. And um, now what is interesting is that when we look at that study specifically, what we, in, 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 in a little bit more detail, what we find is that people in the TRE group um, were able to reduce their calories. TRE is like, time-restricted eating. Time-restricted eating, yeah, yeah. sorry. That's um, okay. So people in the time-restricted eating group were able to reduce their calorie intake consistently throughout this entire year that they were on this intervention more than um, people who were just, you know, attempting to restrict their calories and not doing time-restricted eating. And, um, and when we look at the trend in weight loss, I would say, you know, this study didn't show a statistically significant difference in weight loss, but they had a fairly high threshold that they were able to detect, you know, in a clinical trial like this, you set a threshold before you even do the study. So these investigators, when they set out to do the study, they said, we want to be able to detect the difference of at least 2.5 kilos or 5.5 pounds between these two intervention groups. And I'd say in a study in which you're already restricting your calorie intake, that's a pretty high threshold to jump over. Particularly because, you know, if you already have weight loss, that also means there's a large variation in the weight loss within each group. And then it's really difficult to detect such a large, what we call differential weight loss, right? So, so let me just say that back. So they were not just looking for which participants saw more than 5.5 pounds loss. They were saying in order to show a difference, if you lost 12 pounds and I lost eight pounds, we wanted to see it. That would not that would not qualify because that's only a four pound difference. Is that exactly. what you're walking out yeah. there? Okay. So exactly. So people in the, um, in the control group that only did the calorie restriction arm, they lost 6.3 kilos and that's probably, let me do the math, like 13 or 14 pounds or so. So let's just, which is significant. Yeah. It's significant, right? Yeah. So people in the calorie restriction plus time restricted eating arm would then have to lose that amount, you know, let's right. say 14 pounds plus 5.5, which is 19.5. Yeah. They yeah. did lose a bit more. No, they lost about four pounds more, but not 5.5 pounds. Gotcha. And so that difference was not statistically significant. But what I do think we need to realize is kind of two things from this. One is that in humans, it's very clear now from this study and other studies, time-restricted eating is not the kind of miracle intervention that it is seems to be in mice where there's some miraculous 
additional burning of calories, you know, increase in energy expenditure that somehow makes us makes us just drop pounds like crazy. What I do think, though, is possible is that in humans, time-restricted eating can help a little bit with additional weight loss. There have been a few other studies that actually have shown additional weight loss um, in people on time-restricted eating, but there's probably two things that need to happen um, for that to actually be successful. You need to maintain it for a substantially long enough time. So if you just do it for two weeks, you're not going to drop pounds like crazy. So you need to to basically make it a lifestyle uh, sure. that you that you adhere to at least I'd say five or six days of the week, right? And the second thing is you need to probably restrict your eating window more substantially than people did in this study, mm. because in this study this was done in a Chinese population. You could argue people were already time restricting their mm. eating at baseline because their eating window was less than eleven hours. Um, which is substantially less than the 14 to 15 hours that we're mostly seeing in the United States in yeah. most people. Yeah. And so if you reduce your eating window from say 11 to eight hours, what this study shows us is that the effect on weight loss in the context of this particular calorie restricted diet is, you know, minimal, maybe not, a, maybe there's no benefit, but maybe there's a minimal benefit. But if we compared somebody that has a snack before bed, 9 PM, gets up starts again at seven so you've got what 10 hours in there so they're doing more of a 14 not an 11 they're doing a 14 10 versus a what a 8 16 mm-hmm. that could make uh, that'd be a completely different variables that, that they did not look at in this study they didn't exactly so uh this was a again in this chinese population people were basically having already a fairly narrow right. eating window right that's important and I would argue that that likely uh, diminished the effect of going onto an eight-hour time-restricted eating, um, you know, regimen. Um, and then add to that that they were already calorie restricting, which means it's right. more difficult to actually detect an additional effect. Because, in my opinion, actually, I always felt the premise of time-restricted eating uh, in humans, you know, unless we really think there could be this huge boost to energy expenditure. But I felt. One benefit could be that it really helps people stay away from snacks. You know, that's more or less how I use it, for example. I, I don't do this religiously, but I usually don't have any calories after dinner. Right. Because in the past, particularly when we had little kids and we were sleep, sleep deprived, I know you have kids, you probably went through this. Um, you know, my wife and I would go roam the house looking for a <laughs> ice cream in the evening. And um, so. You're kind of hitting home now, buddy. <laughs> so for me, actually, to just. Uh, resolve to usually, you know, and I'm not religious about it. If we have friends over and play a game, I'll have a few chips or something, but usually I'm not having any alcohol or calories after dinner. It just helps me kind of be a little more disciplined there and and not even think about whatever food we have in the house. Well, that was one of my questions for you is, did they ask that in the study at all? Because I hear so many people saying the ease of it is what they like. They don't have to think yeah. about it. They just, they don't eat after dinner. They don't eat before whatever, eight, nine, 10 in the morning, except for their black coffee. And so it just, it takes no mental energy to do time-restricted eating because it's just what you do versus yeah. somebody who says, no, I'm going to be restrictive. I just, I, I'd love to see a subjective survey like or something with this group to find out, did those who just restricted have more mental anguish, more emotional energy into it versus the folks that just said, Hey, I'm just doing the 16, eight thing. It's a piece of cake. 
Yeah, they didn't ask for it. So that's exactly one thing I would have liked actually to see that they have a questionnaire at least asking, okay, how easy was it for you right. to maintain this uh, calorie restriction? Because right. my suggestion is, and the data say, you know, tell us that story a little bit, because as I've said, people were supposed to reduce their calorie intake in both groups by design, right? I think by about 600 kilocalories or so would be 25% of their baseline calorie intake. But consistently throughout the study, calorie intake was about 100 kilocalories lower in those that also did time-restricted eating. Interesting. And what that means to me is it was probably easier for them to calorically restrict. And that may actually be a benefit of time-restricted eating, that it just makes it a little less painful. Because no one likes to actively restrict their calories. So I'd say that's still a possibility. And I'd say the study leaves open the possibility so that people understand this correctly. It leaves open the possibility that even in this context of restricting your calorie intake window by only an additional two or three hours, you know, from 10 and a half or 11 to eight, and in a context where you're already restricting your calories, it's still possible that you could basically get some additional weight loss. And that would also be in line with other studies. Like there's a couple other studies in which the eating window was more strongly restricted, you know, in the United States, say from 14 to eight or from in one other study from about 13 and a half to 10, no, to eight and another from 15 to 10. So about a five hour reduction in the eating window. And in both of those studies, they saw um, significant weight loss in Mm. people doing restricted eating. Interesting. what I think the conclusion is from all of these studies together, and the new study is consistent with that, is that time-restricted eating is not a miracle intervention in humans um, that makes you drop tens of pounds all by itself. But I would say it can likely add a few pounds of weight loss, you know, um, if you just implement it without doing anything else, even if you don't want to lose weight. And if you add it to other interventions, um, you know, like calorically restricting or what I would actually prefer, you know, improving your diet quality. Right. I'd say it can add an additional kind of uh, element, be an additional tool that can just make it a little bit more likely for you to be successful. Right. Right. All right. Fun rabbit trail. I need to bring us back, but I knew people would be into this thing because they're seeing the study out there. They're hearing on it. Um, Maybe a weird question here. I'm making my salad at lunch today and that's kind of what I have every day. It's just, you know, whatever veggies we got in the house all mixed together and put in some kind of protein source, a little olive oil, salt and pepper, good to go, rock and roll. And I was just thinking, I wonder if there've been any studies and my, my guess is no, but I'm curious if you see anything on the horizon about this of enhanced digestion or enhanced uh, utilization of, of the body of the nutrients that are already there as compared to, let's say, I don't know, I made the salad the day before for myself and I just pulled out of the fridge, sit down at my desk, put it away. No, no digestive juices in my mouth as I'm cutting up the peppers, no standing position that help, that, that gravity helps get things flowing. None of the pausing from life. I, I don't know. Have you seen anything like that? I'm just curious if that's a, a thing or if we just don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, I, I think in general, you're touching on something interesting. And that is, to me, um, there are probably a lot of factors that affect our the health effects of the foods that we're eating, like how stressed we are, for example, like all of this eating in front of computers or yeah. TVs or while we're driving. I'd say, again, there's no hard data, but I'd say for sure that does make some difference, uh, specifically in terms of how well, for example, we perceive our satiety. There's mm-hmm. actually some research there. Let me correct that. For those issues, there's clearly research showing that we eat more calories when we 
eat in front of the TV or something like that. Of course. Absolutely. Distraction. Yeah. Um, I also feel strongly that it's a, it's a, you have a different relationship with your food if you grow some of it yourself. Yep. And I, no I heard in a previous podcast, you do some of that as well. Yes. Um, just like the act of harvesting it and doing that. But I am not entirely aware that there's like hard outcomes attached to that, that people have looked into, okay, well, what's the absorption of certain micronutrients and, um, you know, do we, um, is the bioavailability higher, for example, or is the secretion of digestive juices higher? If that's the case, it would make some sense, right? Because you're in a way you're preparing your body for food intake. Right. We do this. Um, but I'm not even sure if anyone's looked. So uh, I don't think so. I've never come across anything like this. And you can call up Dr. Panda after this interview and be like, hey, I got our next one. Let's put in for grants on this one. <laughs> all right. Very good. Uh, all right. So flip flopping generally credited to politicians, but it seems to be true in nutrition as well. It, for someone who's not in, like you're following it all. You're, you're on top of it. I'm talking to all these folks. So I'm kind of on top of it. But what does the average person do that's hearing on Monday that eggs are the worst possible thing you could ever have? And on Wednesday, eggs are critical for your nutrition. And on Tuesday, they find out that milk's terrible. And on Thursday, milk's the best thing. And it just seems like we're hearing the back and forth. And probably a lot of that is the lack of nuance that you mentioned earlier. We're not tuning into the nuance. We're looking for the headline. We're looking for the book concept. We're looking for the speaker that's going to be the next keynote at the, at the conference instead of the reality of those nuances that exist. But any, any guidance for that person who wants to follow the evidence, but is stuck in the headlines? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question. So one, the biggest advice I would have for people is to look for sources that reflect on the totality of the evidence. Okay. And the totality of the evidence, what I mean is, if you're interested, say, in whether eating more eggs will give you heart attacks, don't just look at one study, and particularly not a study that's just portrayed in a newspaper outlet or a magazine or a YouTube video. Like what I'm trying to do with my videos, and that's a big challenge because it quickly becomes too academic and too, you know, too comprehensive. I get you. Yeah. Like when I looked at the time-restricted eating study, for example, for my last video, I did review, you know, the five other studies that had looked at the same question. And I wasn't happy with it afterwards because to be honest, I, I feel like it's a bit too much like an academic presentation, mm -hmm. <laughs> you sure. know, like a YouTube video. Right. But the reality is for people, if you read, say, the New York Times titling, red meat causes colon cancer, you know, mm -hmm. almost certainly that is not based on several randomized controlled trials where people were fed red meat versus no red meat. And then they waited 20 years to see who got colon cancer. It's right. almost certainly based on an observational study. The problem is that both the authors and the, the journals, but also the news media, they're incentivized right now to make outsized claims, you know, basically Need those clicks, I call it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, if they had a headline that said something like um, red meat intake associated with uh, colorectal cancer in 55 to 65 <laughs> year old Asian women, you know, but not in you right. know, uh, Caucasians, no one would click that one. Right. 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 So the, the they wouldn't fit in their article. That, that takes a whole paragraph. Yeah, they were exactly. Uh, I understand why they're not doing it. Right. But at the same time, I think we need to educate people to not fall prey to this. So ideally, 
find sources where now someone actually looks at all of the evidence, not just this one paper, but all of the evidence, say, on colorectal cancer and uh, on, on red meat intake and colorectal cancer or eggs and heart disease, right? Try to look at not just one study, but the totality of the evidence, right? And, and that, in my opinion, is how ideally we would communicate the science. Uh, and I, I understand myself, this is difficult. And it's actually even just a challenge to make that appealing, right? Yeah. And it, because it's not directly appealing to people. Because sometimes if you look at the totality of the evidence, it's a lot more complex than just looking at that one study. You know, the one study found nicely, red meat causes colon cancer. Well, okay, if now you look at all the studies, Maybe there's something that didn't show this or that, you know, show certain other outcomes. And maybe they defined the, the red meat intake differently. Maybe it was just processed red meat that actually seemed to be a problem in some studies, but then the other studies didn't actually uh, differentiate between unprocessed and processed red meat. So quickly, I think communicating it like this becomes a challenge because the average person doesn't want to know about all that detail. Of course. All, yeah, yeah, yeah. all they want to know Don't is- have time for it. Yeah. Can I eat the salami? Can right. I eat the steak or not? You yeah, know? Exactly. And I would love to give people that feedback. Um, but the problem is that um, if you take these types of shortcuts and just tell people, okay, yeah, yeah, unprocessed red meat, safe, salami, not safe, you know, um, that is also a problem because I think in my mind, you need to at least provide a little bit of justification. You know, why is that? You know, so people really understand what's going on. So it's a real, in my mind, it's a communications problem um, and a problem in this fast world where we're incentivized to make outsized claims that are clickable. And I know every news outlet is under pressure to do exactly sure. this, right? To sure. produce, you know, they're all being measured by how much uh, people click on their stuff. And um, so I don't blame them again, but I do think as a consumer, look for things that don't, that are not based on one study, but on the totality of the evidence, you know, all the studies that were done in, on that particular question. And I know that's what the effort you're trying to make with your website. And folks, again, we'll have the link to that in the description below. So definitely check that out. It's going to be a great resource. That's why we reached out to Dr. Kratz in the first place. All right, my friend, final question. If you had a magic wand, you can get the definitive answer to any nutritional question that you do not know the answer to yet. What would that question be? <laughs> just oh, one. You just get one. That's a fun one, actually. Huh. Well, I would probably say um, I'd really like to know the, the relationship between the foods we eat and um, different aspects of immune system activation. So inflammation or autoimmune reaction. Because it's likely to me that there are strong relationships between, you know, uh, say having a low-grade chronic inflammatory, uh, being in a low-grade chronic inflammatory state, which is kind of involved in almost all chronic disease we know, neurodegenerative, but also heart disease. Type 2 diabetes is also actually low-grade inflammatory. We, I used to study that in my lab. Um, but we don't really know exactly where does this inflammation come from. In some cases, it may be unspecific or just the result of over-consuming calories, but there may also be specific dietary components that play a role in this. And specifically, I'd say with autoimmune disease, it's I'd say pretty likely that there are major involved that there's major involvement of different foods that we eat in uh, potentially at least modulating that effect, or maybe even triggering it in some cases. 
Um, so I myself have celiac disease actually, um, diagnosed, self-diagnosed, but also actually totally confirmed diagnosis when I was studying nutrition. Um, so fairly late. And, um, you know, there, that's one good example that we know for sure that we have a component in a food that, you know, very clearly and strongly triggers an autoimmune response. And, you know, that one thing can make you insanely sick. It's almost certainly not that simple with other autoimmune or inflammatory diseases, but that's really something, you know, if I had all the insights there of what, what the actual facts are, that would be, that would be pretty amazing because I think that with that, we could probably do away with much of chronic disease. We'll wait for you to come out with all that for <laughs> us. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Again, your website is nourished by science, correct? That's how they'll nourished look it up. Science. And we yes. will have a link in there, folks. But nourishedbyscience.com, check that out. That's where you get the evidence-based practices. You get the balance. You get the nuance. Again, Dr. Kratz and I don't have any relationship here or affiliation or anything like that. We just love what he's doing, and we're glad he could join us today. So thank you so much, my friend. Really appreciate you having me. It was uh, really fun talking to you. You're doing such a nice job with this uh, podcast, and uh, it's been it's been really wonderful talking to you. And by the way, if I may say this, I'm just starting out with my website and my YouTube channel. And quite frankly, I'm still learning. This is, you know, I'm, I used to be a professor, so okay. I'm, I'm used to talking, right. you know, I'm giving scientific talks and, and I'm still learning how to make this information scientifically rigorous, but really more, a little bit more palatable to sure. a wider audience. Sure. So if anyone, if you or any one of your listeners, you know, wants to check it out and has suggestions, Hey, make this shorter, leave out that stuff. You're open. That's exactly what I'm looking for right now, because I want to make this content, you know, really accessible to everyone uh, so that that people can benefit from it and that it's as clickable as, you know, some of the misinformation we have right now and the, the, the I think, you know, overstated facts that we so often see. And I, I'm, I'm almost certain you'll get that kind of response. The, the folks that listen, they, they send us such encouraging emails about the podcast and what's going on. And, and I'm sure they're happy to give you some feedback as you go through that. So folks, you heard the instructions. We've got an authentic scientist here who really wants your help and let's help them out with this thing. So Dr. Kratz, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. The reason we started this podcast 227 episodes ago was the desire to bring evidence-based practices to the world of health and wellness, a world often dominated by fads and headlines. What a pleasure to have Dr. Kratz, whose mission is in exact alignment with that goal, join us today. And thanks to you for joining us, for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you might also enjoy our weekly Catalyst 5. These are five bullet point tips, tricks, and words of encouragement we've discovered that have enhanced our own personal and professional lives. They come out every Tuesday in a format that, frankly, you can read through in 60 seconds or less. But then we provide a few links in each one of those so you can dig into the depth if that's something you'd like to explore further. There is a link in the podcast description if you'd like to tap into those. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions about your current or future coaching career, results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or tap into additional health, wellness, and performance resources on the website at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now it's time to be a catalyst. This is Dr. Brad Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I'll speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast or maybe over at the YouTube Coaching Channel.